Today I'll be speaking with Joshua Oppenheimer, a filmmaker who has made two mesmerizing films, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence. And as you'll hear from this interview, I am quite awed by his achievement. He has managed to make films about genocide that are harrowing, as you would expect, but also remarkably beautiful. And he's created a kind of moral laser with both of these projects. And uh, it just it focuses the relevant emotions of outrage and compassion in a way that, that I haven't experienced before in film. As I say at the outset of this interview, I consider both of these films masterpieces. I highly recommend that you see them if you haven't. I think you'll be able to enjoy our conversation whether or not you've seen them. But this should really be a goad to go straight to a movie theater to see The Look of Silence and uh, to go online to see the director's cut of The Act of Killing, which you can see on Netflix. But other than that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joshua Oppenheimer. He's a recent recipient of the MacArthur, quote, Genius Award, which, if you've seen the films, uh, you will recognize as richly deserved. So without further ado, I give you Joshua Oppenheimer. Hey, Joshua, how you doing? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, listen, are, are, you, um, are you sitting down? I'm going to praise you rather fulsomely to start. Um, I'm sitting. I, I got to tell you, I mean, you have made two of the best documentaries I have ever seen. I mean, I, I consider both your films, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence, just masterpieces. And, and I don't use that word lightly. So it's, it's just it's a great pleasure to talk to you. And I, I'd like to, I know you have the second film, The Look of Silence, coming out today in New York. I don't know when we're going to release this podcast. Uh, I assume uh, it'll be out in, in at least Los Angeles by the time we do. But um, I just want to tell you, you're, you're, I want to talk about both films, emphasizing the new one, but it's, just, it's an amazing accomplishment what you've done with these films. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored and humbled by, your, by, by that. Thank you. Now, before we get into the, the films themselves, perhaps you can say a little bit about the relevant history here, because both films discuss a genocide that many people don't know anything about, and it, it follows a history of exploitation by Western powers that really is, is quite shocking. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened in Indonesia? Sure. Well, Indonesia was a Dutch colony until 1945, and uh, Sukarno, the first president of Indonesia, was a charismatic, left-leaning populist and the founder of the non-aligned movement. He was trying to steer Indonesia into a space, a course of development that was neither dependent on the Soviet Union nor the West nor the United States in, in the Cold War when countries were under tremendous pressure to take sides and to, and to align themselves with one power or the other. And this, of course, incurred the wrath of the United States. So uh, in the years from the late 50s up until 1965, the United States supported, began supporting very intensively the Indonesian army as a, a kind of opponent of the president of Sukarno and of the broader Indonesian left. And in 1965, there was a military coup in which a new military dictatorship came to power and consolidated its rule through the mass murder of anywhere between half a million and three million people in under six months. The victims were any presumed opponent of the new regime, so union leaders, uh, progressive politicians, critical journalists, the ethnic Chinese, anyone who was uh, in a left-leaning organization, uh, the leaders of the Indonesian women's movement, 
And all of this was supported and incited and then rewarded to the tune of ultimately of billions of dollars of aid by the United States. So in Indonesia, we, we have essentially two generations of people who have been living surrounded by the people who murdered their loved ones. There's been no justice. I mean, the killers are, are still in power. That's right. More than that's right. Beyond there having been no justice, or the reason there's been no justice is because the perpetrators remain in power. And I, I believe you said in another interview that it was like going to Germany 40 years after the Holocaust and finding the Nazis still in power and happy to reminisce about how they reduced millions of people to ash. Yeah, and I think the Nazis would be more ashamed of it than the Indonesians because they knew that the rest of the world are, was was condemning the Holocaust while it was taking place. Whereas here, the Indonesians knew, uh, the perpetrators in Indonesia know and believe that the rest of the world uh, was celebrating their genocide while it was taking place. In fact, while I was filming one of the perpetrators, one of them looks right at the camera because I'm right behind the camera and therefore right at me and right at the audience and says, I should be rewarded with a cruise to the United States because it was America that taught me uh, to hate and kill the communists. Mm. Yeah, and there's a, a very um, inadvertently funny, but just um, tonally so now deranged piece of footage that you supply in the new movie, The, the Look of Silence, from, I think it was NBC News, or, or was it NBC News? or ABC? It was an NBC, yeah, yeah an NBC, a special one-hour-long NBC News report produced in 1967, essentially celebrating the genocide. We hear uh, that Indonesia is now more beautiful without the communists. And we hear that Goodyear, major corporation, uh, in order to harvest the latex that would end up in our tires, the soles of our shoes, and in our condoms, was using slave labor drawn from death camps. When the workers were used up, they were sent back to the camps to be killed starved or dispatched out to death squads to be killed. This is, of course, essentially what German corporations were doing on the periphery of Auschwitz a mere 20 years earlier. And the German radio uh, was not actually broadcasting that to, to German citizens. This is actually being reported pretty openly to American citizens, but as something good, as good news, as, as a victory in the struggle for freedom and democracy, something that should be uh, celebrated Something that, uh, some, and, and it should give us pause. Any, anyone seeing the film ought to pause and wonder whether the struggle of the so called free world against the communist world was the real reason for, these, uh, for American involvement in these atrocities, or whether that was actually just a pretext or an excuse for the murderous corporate plunder that we see documented in sunny terms in the NBC clip. Well, it is a ghastly history, but I, history aside and the, and the horrific details aside, I, I'd like to get at what is so unusual about your films, because there, you know, there are many documentaries on horrible pieces of history. You know, we, there are many Holocaust documentaries and many genocides have been reviewed in film, and th this makes for difficult viewing in every case, but what's so strange about your films is that they're almost like psychological experiments for, for the audience and for the people on the screen, and I would imagine for you as a filmmaker, because you have created situations that no one has really seen before. I, I think few people would have thought possible, and they, they have the effect of turning up the volume on our moral emotions, the feelings of outrage and, and horror at man's inhumanity to man. 
But you, you've done this in contexts that can't contain these emotions at all. In, in The Act of Killing, your first film, there's a, a campiness and, and near comedy to this movie where the, the main killer is this amusing dandy who, you know, who loves Elvis and John Wayne and he's got this fellow goon sidekick who's a cross-dresser. And I'll get into each film separately, but I'm now talking about both generally. In the new film, you do something very different, but it has the same effect of not being able to contain the emotions you're driving to the surface. Because in, in the new film, The Look of Silence, there's a, a formal beauty to it, and a, I mean, every all these shots are so stunning and so tranquil, and there's there's just a silence and, and an attention to aesthetic detail in your framing of everything, but it's like there are nuclear bombs going off beneath the surface, and all we're seeing is the occasional unsettling of a teacup, and the effect is just riveting. That, that's a, those are beautiful descriptions of what I've tried to do in both films. I mean, I try to paradoxically, by narrowing my focus onto one perpetrator and the men around him in the act of killing and one survivor's family and the look of silence, I try to create immersive, present tense experiences for viewers. I try not to tell a story through exposition, which of course keeps us at the distance, gives us the same remove from the events depicted that a storyteller, that a narrator would have. But instead, I try to immerse you and have you identify with the people involved. And in both, I see my work as creating occasions, creating situations in which the inherent contradictions and horrors come to the surface in a way that feels overwhelming and, despite it all taking place within the overall safe space of making a film, uh, uncomfortable for everybody involved. And in the act of killing, you know, I'm encountering the truth of boasting, bragging uh, perpetrators. Uh, and I felt the moral truth of this, the kind of... Uh, sort of transcendent truth here would be if these perpetrators would make a, a musical. And so I invite them to dramatize what they've done in whatever ways they wish in order to uh, make visible the lies, the stories, the fantasies that allow them to live with themselves, the persona, the contradictory persona they inhabit that allow them to live with themselves. And then this is something you really see in the uh, in the uh, longer international version of the film, the version of The Act of Killing that came out outside the United States, but is now actually available in the U.S. too as the director's cut on Netflix. It's The Act of Killing director's cut. Um, but it's 40 minutes longer than what came out outside the United States. You see this kind of recursive process of performing, of dramatizing, and then watching and responding. And you see Anwar Act, uh, watching his own fantasies, his dramatizations, and then proposing the next one in response, and watching and proposing the next one in response. And what unfolds is this kind of fever dream about escapism and guilt, and we are sucked right into it with Anwar. So I think that what, what, what's happening here is we are immersed, and, 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 and each time Anwar watches the horror, of, uh, watches his previous dramatization, we can see that he's terribly pained. But as you put it very nicely, there's nowhere for those emotions to go except further denial. So he launches into, he proposes what he considers to be a kind of aesthetic improvement, as though if he can fix the scene aesthetically, he can somehow dispel the pain and fix his past morally. And so one dramatization begets another, begets another, begets another until we're tobogganing through a kind of fever dream of shifting fantasies. And we get this, and it's about, again, the lies and fantasies that make up the 
the killers present and the terrible consequences of those when imposed on the whole society of the corruption, the thuggery, and the fear. And in the look, in that sense, it is about impunity today, not about the events of the genocide half a century ago, which, as you pointed out, there's many documentaries about terrible things in the past, and they, they don't have the same impact because we know that there's been many terrible episodes of history all over the world. I try to make this about the present, and I try to make it universal. Similarly, in The Look of Silence, by focusing on one survivor who sets out to do something unimaginable, something that we have never seen in the history of nonfiction film, namely confronting survivors, confronting perpetrators while they still hold a monopoly on power, we see uh, another kind of confrontation. When Adi goes and shows that he's willing to uh, forgive the men if they can only accept what they've done is wrong, they're forced to see him and by by extension, the brother, his brother whom they murdered, and then all of their victims as humans. And their, their uh, lies, their delusions start to crumble, and you see them frantically scrambling for new lies uh, to, because those emotions are impossible, as you put it, Sam. And they, they uh, start to deny, they, they, they deny responsibility, they get angry, they get defensive. And all of this takes place within a space that I've tried to depict with as much grace and humanity and even love as possible so that we can feel yeah, the haunted silence in which the family has been, the survivors' families are forced to live and in which this is taking place. And I, I hope it makes the violence and the anger and the, 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 the tinder, sort of tinderbox, it's, it's the kind of silence of nitroglycerin. I hope it makes that the beauty and the intimacy makes all of that more shocking. It, it certainly does, and also the level of compassion evinced in, in especially the second film, The Look of Silence, is really breathtaking. I mean, Adi's compassion and his apparent willingness to forgive if he can only find someone with a conscience worth forgiving. I mean, the, seeing his interaction with the, the killers of his brother is just mesmerizing. And I, I want to step back for a second, though, because we just kind of breeze through the act of killing and... For those who haven't seen the film, it'd be very difficult to understand what's going on here. In fact, I think for even if you've seen it on a first viewing, it's very hard to appreciate how strange a document this is. I mean, you, you inevitably miss some of the amazing detail in the beginning as you're trying to figure out, get your bearings in this world and, and in the, with this project that you've created of the musical in which these killers reenact their crimes. So I want to just talk just broadly about the, two, the devices you use in both films. In, in the act of killing, as you say, you, you have the killers create a, a musical, kind of a weird hybrid Western you know, film noir soap opera in which they depict their torture and murder of their neighbors. And, and cruci- crucially also their feelings about it. Right, they, they, right. You know, they re- these sort of musical numbers often reflect on their emotions about what they've done, their desperate attempt to glorify it, for example. And they and they play both parts. So they, you have killers playing victims too, and so they're they're experiencing both sides of it. You know, often in the same, they don't even change costume. Incongruously, they play victims in what they were wearing as killers. But it becomes this very strange ritual of almost just an expiation of their sins. And then you have them watching this footage. And this is a device you use in, in both movies where you have both perpetrators and victims watching 
the confessions of perpetrators on on television and then you film them while they're watching themselves or others confess to these crimes and so this this film within a film device in in the act of killing is what in my view makes it really one of the strangest documents our species has ever produced I mean, half of my amazement at the film was was not so much that the events themselves that you depict are amazing and 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 horrible but the, the sheer fact that your film exists was as amazing as anything within it. I mean, how you got these people to collaborate in this way and what they thought they were doing. And just it, it produces this, this uncanny feeling of strangeness. Now, in the, in the Look of Silence, your new film, it's a very different film. You're treating the same material. You're talking about the same events. But you have a different device here where, you, where Adi, who's a, an optician, is fitting, he doesn't do this in every interview, but in many interviews with, with the killers, the, the, the interview is conducted over the course of him fitting them for eyeglasses. So he's testing their vision, and then he's using that as a context in which to have this conversation. Was that, did you just, just stumble into that device, or was this, did the filmmaker and you realize that this was going to produce wonderful footage and a great way in so that you crafted this as a device? Or well, the, no, of course, the filmmaker and I recognized that this would be, the filmmaker and me recognized that this would be this powerful metaphor for blindness, because I knew Adi would be testing the eyes of men who would be resistant to seeing. Mm. So I knew that, um, and I knew that uh, specifically the eye tests would be this, they wouldn't give us access. I mean, I, they, the, film, the, the perpetrators Adi's confronting knew me from years earlier. So the access would come from me. I would bring Adi and I would say, I'm back after all these years. The men who, uh, and, and this time I no longer want you to dramatize what you've done in whatever way you wish, which is what I would have maybe asked them to do years earlier. I would remind them that I'd gone on to make a film with some of the most powerful men in the country in which they do just that. Uh, so that they, and that would of course serve to keep us safe. The men, the act of killing had been shot, but had not yet come out when we had not yet been seen by anybody. It had been edited, but had not been seen by anybody when we shot the look of silence. I knew once it was seen, I wouldn't be able to return safely to Indonesia. So this was a, a space where it was a, it was a narrow window where we could make this film. And I realized that I was well known for being close, for having made this film with the highest ranking perpetrators in the country and believed, therefore, people believed, therefore, that we were close because that no one had seen the act of killing yet. Now, I'm still close with Anwar Congo, the main character in the film. But of course, the powerful politicians in the act of killing hate me. So mm -hmm. I would tell the man Adi was visiting, I'm back with this. After all these years, I've gone on to make a film with some of the most powerful men in the country. I would name some names. I, I wouldn't refer to them as the most powerful men in the country. I would just name their names. And then I would say, I this time want to film you and Adi discussing these events. You both have personal relationships to it. You may disagree with each other. Try to listen to one another. Because, of course, Adi was hoping to find reconciliation with his neighbors. And I told him from the beginning, I don't think you'll find anybody who's able to admit their guilt because it would be too traumatic for them to do so. But if I can show their pained responses, if I can show how impossible it is, if that is to say, if I can document why we fail to get the reconciliation you're hoping for, I will be making visible how torn the social fabric of Indonesia is and how urgently truth, reconciliation, and some form of justice are needed. And in that sense, for anyone watching the film anywhere in the world, people will be, half, will be forced to acknowledge the prison of fear in which every Indonesian is living today and therefore forced 
to uh, support and somehow to support truth and, and reconciliation. And I said to Adi, I think that so I, I think you will fail, but I think that we might succeed in a bigger way through the film as a whole. And so like the, like the dramatizations in the act of killing, I felt that the confrontations in the look of silence would make visible something that had pre, and, and un, un, uh, impossible to ignore, something that had previously been invisible or deliberately ignored by everybody in Indonesia. And the so then I would say, I'm here, so I want to document this. I would tell the perpetrators, I want to document your conversation with Adi. Try to listen to one another. And if you can, and as a thank you for your time, Adi's an optometrist. He will test your eyes. And if you need glasses and want glasses, we'll give you as many pairs of glasses as you like. And you see, I realized that the eye tests, uh, in addition to likely producing this kind of powerful metaphor for blind, blindness, would also help keep the seat, the confrontation safe. Mm. You, you you referred to them as interviews, Sam, but you're well, we're having a conversation more. But but such a such a conversation would be could be called an interview. You're sort of interviewing me uh, for inform. An interview is when you're looking for information and feelings. Adi's trying to do something. He's trying to reconcile his family with his neighbor's family, with the ki- families, with the, the, his brother's killers. And that's not an interview. That's a confrontation. That's a dr- dramatic scene. Uh, and I realized that as a fir- if we could make wherever possible, if the first part of this drama, this confrontation, were eye tests, it would help keep us safe. Because when you're having your eyes tested, you're, of course, disarmed. Your guard is down. You're not likely to physically attack somebody. And also, of course, it was a, it was a context that Adi could prolong for as long as necessary, where he could uh, elicit the stories, uh, the, the, the most important details of what the perpetrators had done, all things that they had told me years earlier. Mm. Uh, but, but of course, if Adi were to go to them and say, I understand you did this and this and this from Joshua's footage, they would feel trapped. And, the, right. and there would be no chance of dialogue. It would be dangerous and confrontational from the outset. So this was a chance for the perpetrators in a comfortable setting to volunteer what they had done and in a context that uh, a setting or time frame that Adi could control. He could keep it going for as long as necessary. So that was the original impetus for the eye test. But of course, I understood this would likely be this very powerful metaphor because I knew the kind of stories they would tell. I knew they would tell these unspeakable details, things like right out of a Hieronymus Bosch painting while their eyes are being framed by these ridiculous, surreal, scarlet test lenses. Yeah, yeah. And, and visually, it, it has an aesthetic beauty, too. I mean, you, you open the film, if I'm not mistaken, with a shot of one of the people getting his, his eyes tested. It, so much of this hinges on Adi as a person and just how he shows up for these confrontations. And he is truly remarkable. I mean, he, he is, there's a level of moral seriousness and gradations of anguish and compassion that you get off of him. It's, I mean, he's like a one-man Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There's a moral force to his very subtle conversations with these people. Once you're witnessing it, you realize you you just you haven't seen these kinds of encounters between people really ever. ever. Yeah, ever. and ever. It, it's it's um it's it's quite amazing. I, watching the film, though, I began to worry for his safety, and it, it seems like he was running a considerable risk collaborating with you. And this this comes out, you know, his concern about this comes out at various points in the film. And I believe in your press materials, you talk about this being, you mentioned it here, that it's the first time that this has ever happened, where you have someone confronting perpetrators of, of a genocide 
when the when the perpetrators are, are still in power. And so I'm just wondering, what kind of safety precautions did you take, and what is his security situation now? Well, we took we knew that we might have to stop the filming and not even and perhaps not even release the film throughout the production. Uh, we for each of the confrontations, Adi would go with no ID, so that it would be if we were detained, it would be hard for Adi to be. Uh, for Adi, to, for them to identify who he was before we could get help, hopefully from one of our embassies. Uh, Adi would bring, we would have come with two cars so that we would be able to, we, if we had to run away or escape, it would be harder for them to follow us. So we had a kind of getaway vehicle. And we, uh, Adi, would, Adi would have his family waiting at the airport ready to evacuate if anything went wrong mm, for all wow. of the confrontations with the more powerful perpetrators. These were uh, safety precautions that we took. But then when the film was, I think the, what kept us safe above all was, as I said earlier, first of all, that the cover that we had from the fact that I was believed to be close to the highest ranking perpetrators, of course, word could have spread to them. Somebody could have asked, do you realize what Josh was doing? And that could have fallen apart. So every night between the confrontations, I would spend with Anwar Congo, which was sort of strange to be shifting. Mm between Adi by day and Anwar by night. But we knew that if word had spread, Anwar would be the first to find out. Just for our, our listeners, Anwar is the perpetrator protagonist from your first film, The Act of Killing. The Act of Killing. And we, and of course, uh, that's right. And so we knew that he would tell me or I would feel that something was amiss if word had spread. That was what would allow us to make the decision with some comfort to shoot the next day. We shot the scenes as quickly as possible over the course of their six confrontations. We shot them over six days. As we worked out, and we worked our way up the chain of command, we shot one test confrontation. In fact, it's the one with Enong, the man with the uh, red glasses that we talked about earlier, because we knew he had a terrible relationship with his commanders, had no one therefore to complain to really. Mm. And Adi does not tell him. You remember, you may remember this from the film, Sam. Adi does not tell him who he is, and we use that so that Adi could then go to his wife and to his mother and his family and say what he's doing. We could film their reactions, which you see in the film as well, and you see their apprehension. And then we showed them that scene so they could see what it looks like. The family then said, this is very important. If there's some way of continuing this, even if it means we have to move, you should try to continue because you're breaking half a century of silence here. I think the other thing that kept us safe was the fact that the, these men simply could not believe these conversations were happening at all. There's this sense of total disbelief. They just can't believe the questions that are coming out of Adi's mouth, and they don't know how to respond. I mean, in a way, being able to intimidate or bully or terrorize someone depends on them being afraid. Mm. There, there was this kind of amazing study of a woman in, in somewhere in the Midwest whose fear center in her brain wasn't working, and people would come up to her to mug her, and she would react with no fear. Mm. And uh, they they would they would run away because they were frightened by her lack of fear, and I think there's some of that going on. In any case, when we had a rough cut of the film, about six months before the world premiere at the Venice Film Festival, we met all of us, the film crew, the team that released had already released the act of killing in Indonesia, Adi's family, and me, and my producer in Thailand. At that point, in Thailand, because we knew I couldn't safely return to Indonesia anymore ever since the act of killing was released. And we asked, what should we do? Should we hold this film back until these men are so old they pose us no threat or until there's been real political change in Indonesia? Or should we release the film and the family move to Europe? Well, when the family and the Indonesian team saw the film, they said, this has to come out right away. 
there's so much momentum for change from the first film, The Act of Killing, that we need to build on that. And the family said, well, we're willing to move to Europe if that's what it takes. Crew in Indonesia said, let us see if there's a way we can keep you in Indonesia if you would prefer that, uh, if you feel comfortable with that, because we think that Adi will be seen as a national hero when this film comes out, will have a central role to play in the movement for truth and reconciliation. In fact, we were able to do that. The family did have to move several thousand kilometers from where uh, we shot the film, from where the family comes from. They're now out from under the shadow of the perpetrators, but still in Indonesia, uh, there's, of course, nationally powerful perpetrators who we also worry about. They have not threatened Adi. Uh, there's the family still in Indonesia. Uh, the children are in better schools. We see the terrible uh, brainwashing that happens in Indonesian schools in the film. The children are in better schools. Adi uh, has, we've raised money for Adi with the True False Film Festival to, uh, for Adi to open an optometry store, a brick and mortar eyeglasses shop, and for the kids to be able to go to university should they wish to. So there's a, a better future that we're trying to build for the family. But the fact that they, and the fact that the family should have to flee like fugitives when they're simply trying to create, uh, to trying, in fact, to forgive their neighbors is a sign of how far Indonesia still has to go before it becomes truly a democracy with the rule of law, where the law applies equally to the most powerful as it does to the weakest. And that said, Adi is now seen by many in Indonesia as a national hero and is playing a very central role in the movement for truth and reconciliation there. So it, it, it's, there is, but yet, and yet we do have a plan B for the family to leave the country should it at any point become necessary. Oh, good. Well, I'm happy to hear both of those facts. But I guess I'm a little surprised or confused about the basis for surprise among the Indonesian higher-ups. You know, all the perpetrators knew what they were divulging in their encounters with you and in both films. And there's evidence, certainly in the act of killing, that this history of genocide is openly celebrated. There's one scene where you have a uh, you have them on what looks like a, a local talk show. Maybe it's a national talk show, and there's a young woman interviewing Anwar Congo and and the others about their murder of of uh, communists, and they even claim that they killed 2.5 million communists, kind of the high end of the the spectrum. I, I think it's more often said that a million people died. So they, they're celebrating this on television, and there's lots of laughter, and there's just there's absolutely no moral qualm about what happened. So then what is, if, if that is in fact what the national dialogue is around the disappearance of over a million people, and all these people knew what they were telling you, and they were bragging about having participated in this, what is then the basis for outrage once your films come out? I think there's, there's an official history which doesn't refer to the genocide, but talks about the heroic extermination of the Indonesian Communist Party in, in, in those terms, and nothing more specific. There's generally silence, or there was until the act of killing came out. This has all changed since the act of killing came out. There was generally silence from the Indonesian media with very few exceptions, about the genocide. Then there's a, sh a shadow state of paramilitaries, the military, military intelligence, um, that would sort of unofficially boast about what happened. And I think the boasting serves as a threat. And I think that talk show, is it's actually not national, it's, it's Indonesian state television, but it's the regional mm. studios. And that region of Indonesia is captured more or less politically by the gangsters. 
by the perpetrators, by the thugs, by the shadow state. And all of the audience in that, on that show that's laughing are in the orange camouflage of the paramil- one of the leading paramilitary groups that committed the crime. So right. I think that show functions and is produced in which they're celebrating the production of the act of killing before anyone's seen it, functions as a kind of, as part of this kind of uh, a rare moment where this kind of boasting of the perpetrators, uh, the, the discourse of this shadow state has been elevated to the discord to 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 it broken in really to the public eye and it functions as a threat i mean the boasting of the per- if you imagine that if the nazis had won the ongoing third reich might tolerate the aging ss officers going back to their communities and boasting about what they've done because of course on the one hand it helps those ss officers live with what they've done it's a way of dispelling guilt uh, i think that I can we maybe come touch on that a little more later uh, and it's also it, it also serves to keep everybody afraid. They become sort of uh, feared proxies of the state, the mm-hmm. aging SS officers who enter their communities and boast about unspeakable things. And I think that that's what's happening on that talk show. I think that many of the high-ranking politicians who participate in the act of killing, first of all, are rec- were recruited by Anwar, not by me, and they perhaps thought, I believe thought, that they were, they were entering the, uh, a film that would somehow glorify what they had done, mm. uh, that would give them a page in the official history, uh, whereas normally they're sort of confined to this unofficial boasting. But I think when they start participating in that, when they start articulating their crimes, we hear from many of the men who Anwar brings into the film, including a, a, a minister in the, par- in the parliament, we hear doubt. We hear them say, wait, this, if we continue with this, it'll make us look bad. One minister who flies up from Jakarta to act in the uh, dramatization of a pogrom, a kind of massacre, calls cut and says, if we continue with this, it'll ruin the image of our paramilitary organization. It'll make us look bad. We should stop. Then he, he actually has second thoughts and says, well, keep this as a kind of warning. It's exactly this dynamic I'm talking about, about being feared and using this as a threat. Keep this to show how terrifying we can be. And Adi Zulkadri, another death squad, maybe the second most important death perpetrator in the film, and one recruited by, also by Anwar, calls cut at one point during a particularly harrowing dramatization and says, if we succeed in making this film, it will show everybody in Indonesia what they've always suspected to be true. And then he doesn't say this, but I'll fill in but we're too afraid to acknowledge, and continuing with the quotation, namely that what we did was wrong and all of the propaganda is a lie. Mm -hmm. And so I think the film has this way, by focusing on the boasting of the perpetrators, unofficially uh, tolerated and condoned, uh, it it gives the lie to the whole official history to which the perpetrators are clinging. And I think that speaks to what the boasting of the perpetrators really is. I think that Every perpetrator I've filmed, and you really see this with Anwar Congo, but I also think you can see it in the panic of the perpetrators' faces when they're confronted by Adi. They're not afraid of him. They're afraid of, they're not afraid of me. They're afraid of their conscience. They're afraid of what they see in the moral mirror of Adi's amazing questions. Every perpetrator I've filmed, I think, lives their lives in kind of manic flight from this pall of guilt and shame that follows them everywhere they go and insinuates itself into their sleep and waking them with terrible nightmares. And yet, because they've not been removed from power, they still have available to themselves this victor's history that justifies what they've done 
and treats it as heroic. And so they do the human thing. They try to take these bitter, rotten memories and sugarcoat them in the sweet language of a victor's history that celebrates what they've done. And in that sense, we can understand what that that from that we can understand why they have this why they're always boasting about the most unseemly details, the most grisly details, things we think, how can they be boasting about this? It's not because they're monsters and they don't realize those things are terrible. In fact, it's because those are the most terrible things. Those are the the memories that are most bitter and difficult for them to swallow and in most urgent need of that sugarcoating. And that's somehow why, how I think the act of killing uh, shocks the politicians and the political establishment. By focusing on that boasting, it gives the lie to the the official history that would glo- that would that would be the basis for the boasting that would glorify it by focusing on the boasting of these grisly details. Now, Anwar Congo was not surprised by the film when he saw it. He was silent for a very long time. He was tearful, and then he said, "Joshua, this film shows what it's like to be me." And I'm re- and I asked him, "How does that make you feel?" He said, "I'm relieved to have finally been able to show what these events have meant." Anwar of course, is the one person in the film as well, and you see this more in the uncut version of the film, the so-called director's cut of the film, as well, Herman Koto. These are the two people in the film. Um, he's Herman's Anwar's, si- Anwar's sidekick. These are the two people in the film you see really going through a journey. They understand what they're showing. They uh, are not surprised by the film, but they are devastated by it. Mm. Well, let's talk a little more about the, the attitudes uh, of the killers, because it's certainly what most people find mesmerizing about these films. The boastfulness is is really extraordinary, but it, it, it seems to me they're, they're not all the same. And some have obvious regrets, and this, this came out, I think, more in The Act of Killing than in The Look of Silence. But some, to my eye, really don't seem to have much regret at all, and they really seem prepared to kill again. If they were If they were younger men, you would actually fear that that would be a credible threat from them. And you, you've just described, and I believe you do it in, in the film, one of them, where you, you view their boastfulness as a kind of stratagem for getting over their guilt, the guilt that they must feel and, and should feel. And I think there there's some evidence for that, particularly in, in Anwar, but some of the other people seem to be much more thuggish characters, okay, kind of Saddam Hussein types who, who really just don't seem to feel the guilt. And so I'm wondering if you feel that you encountered a, a range of, of moral scruple in these people, or do you feel that more or less everyone was in Anwar's spot of really being conflicted over this history? Well, I would say that everyone knows what they've done is wrong somehow, and is uh, needing to lie to themselves. And, the, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sort of a in agreement with Primo Levi when he said, there may be monsters among us, but they are too few to worry about. And the real problem, the real danger is the ordinary people. And I think that it does, you know, when I say that people may, may be talking about how everyone has nightmares, that may not be true that all of them, in fact, one of the, the other key perpetrator in the act of killing, Adisu Khatri, says he doesn't have nightmares. He says he sleeps easily at night. I think that the real issue is that that the boasting is effective. It does distance people from what they're talking about when they're talking about it. I think the boasting evidences a need to distance themselves from what they've done, to dissociate themselves from their own memories. 
but it also is effective. People might, they may perpetually be running from guilt and, and fear, but they also always may, may be ahead of it. I think with Anwar, that Paul catches up to him, particularly at night, it gives him these nightmares. I think other people may live their lives in a sense uh, with having killed off their own conscience so that they can live with what they've done. But I think it's a very rare human being who didn't have that conscience to start with. Right. I mean, both of these films are meditations on evil, essentially. And they, there is a hopeful lesson you draw from this because it, the truly evil, conscienceless person is the rarity. And therefore, most hu human evil seems to be more situational, where you have ordinary people capable of evil. This is both a hopeful and non hopeful message. It's non hopeful in the, in the sense that ordinary people perpetrate these genocides. The worst of human behavior is something that, that arises among people just like us, which is to say us very likely in different circumstances. But the, the hopeful message is circumstances are easier to change than people, right? We can imagine that if we had the right societal norms and the right institutions and the right conversation about how to collaborate with one another, the most grotesque eruptions of human evil would become less common. Yeah. And, and I think. I mean, absolutely. And I, I would expand on that slightly and say that, that recognizing that virtually every act of evil in our history has been perpetrated by human beings like us, it's uncomfortable because it means we might, if we lived in other situations, do the same thing. If we grew up in any of these perpetrators' families in 1950s Indonesia, come 1965, we might make the same decision. We would hope that we wouldn't, but most of us are very lucky never to have to find that out. And that's uncomfortable. But if you overcome that, you quickly realize that recognizing that all the that every perpetrator is human with very few exceptions and has the shares the same human morality is the only hopeful response. Because if there's just monsters among us, then we either have to surrender ourselves to this kind of thing happening again and again and again uh, in a kind of despair. Or we have to isolate the monsters and somehow neutralize them. And then how do we stop ourselves from becoming the monsters? Mm. Whereas if we can build societies in which we foster the widest possible empathy, uh, and where we also foster doubt, where we teach children to doubt what authority tells them, so that it's more difficult to incite people to join groups that would betray their individual morality, then we ought to be able to build societies where this kind of un un unimaginable violence truly becomes unimaginable, where it becomes impossible. And I think that the other part of this recognition that, perpetrate, that, that even the worst perpetrators are human beings like us is that you cannot even, not only can you not divide the human community into good guys and bad guys, a moral lie which is repeated in almost all of our journalism and almost all of our uh, even our, our, our cinema, certainly in our cinema. Uh, but you can't even divide the human soul into good parts and bad parts. There's not an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. I think that if you look at the, the director's cut of The Act of Killing, the, the Act of Killing culminates in this section where Anwar plays his own victim in the film noir scenes. And in the, in the shorter cuts of the film, he's starting to feel his guilt and then he uh, just and then, in, as though in response to that, maybe a challenge for me. He's sit. He sat down in the victim's chair and asked, or decides to play the victim. 
But in the director's cut of the film, you actually see how he gets there. And it's perhaps the most important and harrowing part of the uncut version of the film that's been removed from the shorter cuts. Anwar, uh, as he starts to feel his own guilt, he disp- realizing that he's not going to be able to escape it and that it's only getting worse through making the film, he despairingly embraces it and throws himself in that despair into acting out, into, into dramatizing the worst of what he was, and, and also seeking to distance himself from that horror by playing a kind of film noir gangster where, although evil, at least he's, he's glamorous. And that somehow, he, he does that as a, as a, out of a, along with a growing anger. It's as though he, by, by feeling the guilt hurts him that he's starting to feel. And he feel, and who can he blame for it but his own victims? By, as though by killing you, I've hurt myself. Killing you has made me guilty. That's hurt me. So I feel like you're, my, I feel like your victim. He feels like his victim's victim. And along with this, despairing embrace of evil comes this growing self-pity in which he mm. feels like a victim and leads him in inevitably to play the victim. I think it's, it's what the, it was the omission of the, the realization that that section of the act of killing wouldn't fit in the shorter cuts is what led Werner Herzog, one of the film's two executive producers, to declare in, in, right, when we, right from the beginning that the uncut version of the film, the director's cut of the film, is the only legitimate version of the film. It's, if you haven't, he said at the Berlin Film Festival, if you have not seen the director's cut of The Act of Killing, in my opinion, you haven't seen The Act of Killing. Yeah, that, that, that whole sequence is amazing, but although it made me worry and wonder whether or not you weren't a little taken in by Anwar. And again, I mean, obviously you have an experience of him that's much larger than I do by virtue of seeing the film, but... He's obviously very charming, but he strikes me as a kind of monstrously vain person. And I, I'm wondering if his guilt and his his expressions of, of guilt are just a kind of expression of his vanity. There's the scene at the end where, which you just touched on, where he, he marvels at the fact that he went through some of the same emotions his victims did by playing the role of a victim in, in his film. And you rightly point out that his victims felt far worse because they were actually being tortured and, and knew they were going to die while he was just making a film. And then he, he, he seems to concede that. But when he cries and he gets physically ill and he feels faint and when he's, he's contemplating his crimes, I, I just got the sense as a viewer that all of these, these scruples and this whole drama was just kind of flickering at the edge of a, a moral black hole. And he, it's like he first got to play the sadist by personally murdering probably hundreds of people, and now he gets to play the masochist, luxuriating in his guilt and in, in his confessional attitude. And I felt taken in by him as well, or I felt you know sympathetic with him as well. But I, there were moments where I worried that his conscience was itself a kind of affectation of an extraordinarily vain person. So I'm just, I just wanted to bounce oh, that I, off I you. Think you. I think it's very, I mean, I think the answer to that question for me lies in the clarity of my answer to him, or what I hope you feel is the clarity of my answer to him when he says, now I feel what my victims feel. And I say, no, you don't. They were dying and you're acting. I don't mean that the emotion, the shock he feels in response to that is only, again, acting. And I can tell you a little bit the story of how he comes to Wretch on the Roof. I, 
I took him back to that rooftop, of course, the same rooftop that he took me to the, the beginning of the film five years earlier. In fact, the very first day I met him, I went to see him in his house. He told me, I, I told him I wanted to know about his role in the 1965 killings. He said his wife was home with guests and it would be easier maybe to talk about this somewhere else. Perhaps we can even get into the place where it's now become a handbag shop where he killed people. I took him back there at the end of this process and asked him to simply walk me through the place and say a word or two about what happened in each room, knowing that the audience would know the the key stories Mm. from having watched the film, and uh, just wondering what what trace there would be of this long journey that he'd taken. And the first time we walk into that shop, he goes up the stairs, uh, the ground floor was, the first floor was the news, sorry, the ground floor and the second floor were the Uh, were the newspaper offices where they were interrogating people and torturing people. And then the newspaper publisher would say, kill them. He would bring them up to the roof and kill kill them. And when he first walks me through and points out the rooms where different stories he'd he'd opened up about occurred, he was manic. It was like he was completely not present. He was talking with tremendous speed, but he was absent. And it was, I had this feeling this is useless because when Mm -hmm. someone's talking but not present, it's useless in a film. And I said to him, after spending maybe 45 minutes of that, I said, okay, Anwar, thank you. But now let's go back to the beginning and just walk through in total silence. I just want you to be with your memories. And then we did that. That took maybe half an hour. And then I said, okay, now let's try one third, another time, just walk through and say one word or one sentence about each room. What happened? Don't, don't tell me the story. And he was doing that. And when we reached the roof, he, physically starts to retch. And I feel that I actually had that those three, the fact that that's happening on the third take and uh, is, is opening up, it, it was somehow working through layers of resistance. That the, the manic desire, the manic fear he had of his own empathy, the, the way he just before any kind of crack would become so distant and absent from himself, for me, made it clear that the retching that happens was. Uh, despite what he, it was despite himself he was still repeating in the director's cut of the film you hear him say my conscience told me they had to be killed while he's retching he's still trying to speak the lie but his body is rejecting it and i wanted to put my arm around him in that moment because i do care for anwar because i uh, and i'll say something about adi in the act in the look of silence in relation to that I wanted to put my arm around him and say it's going to be okay because I saw he, I'd never seen a man retch so violently and for so long. It's not something an actor could could fake. And uh, and I and yet as I thought of the impulse of, of saying it's going to be okay, this sort of strange American impulse to uh, to be endlessly optimistic, I, I realized no, this is what it looks like when it's really not okay. When it really will never be okay. We've never seen guilt take. Is sort of uh, imprinted on a human body this way before, at least not in film. And I, I just had to sit back and let that moment unfold. I think also that that nevertheless, the, going through that, taking Anwar back to that roof uh, with a sense of occasion, going through three takes in the middle of the night, is is indeed an occasion through which those feelings can emerge. So it's not like either he's performing and it's fake mm. Mm. or it's spontaneous and it's captured. It's of course the film created the safe space. And this goes back to our very the be- very beginning of this talk how I make nonfiction film. 
the film created the, the whole film time and again with each successive dramatization uh, or revisitation, which is what this was, is creating a safe space in which things come out. And what I see at the end is not a man redeemed, not a man uh, go, undergoing catharsis, but a man profoundly damaged and broken, a man who may have escaped justice, but has not escaped punishment. And even if it is just, how did you put it? Something flickering on the edge of the abyss, the edge of a kind of moral black hole. Mm -hmm. it, it is nonetheless, I mean, even if, it, even if his connection with that guilt only happens there, mm. it is, and even if he's so superficial and so vain that he blocks that out from the next morning onward, that hollowness, that emptiness, that vanity is part of his brokenness. It's mm. part of the moral abyss. It's part of the moral rot that the film as a whole is witnessing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, and it, it witnesses it with such clarity and eloquence. It's really it's it, remarkable. Which, which is why the very last shot in the film is not Anwar in the aftermath of Retching, but is Anwar at that giant fish dancing mm -hmm in his delusions, suggesting that he's still lost. D dancing, literally, you know, dancing, there's a thunderstorm in the background. He's at the side of this big crater lake, which incidentally almost led to the extinction of mankind 75,000 years ago when that volcano erupted. Uh -huh. He is precisely, I think it's beautiful, dancing in vanity at the edge of the abyss. But it doesn't make the guilt and brokenness any less real. The vanity is part of that brokenness. Well, I, yeah, I, I certainly accept that. I mean, if nothing else, you you have opened many windows, seem, some some of which can be showing seemingly contradictory parts of us, but you, there are just so many windows onto the terrible beauty and horror of, of human nature, uh, and, and especially in the look of silence. You, I mean, the act of killing is incredibly surreal and disturbing. The look of silence is, in equal measure, a, a study of compassion and and the possibilities of forgiveness. And I mean, the character of Adi is so arresting. I'm mindful of the fact that we're coming up on an hour here, and I just want to close with a couple of questions about what it was like for you to make these films. I, I imagine that you you experienced this on two levels. As a human being, you you were probably horrified by what you were uncovering and often scared by its implications. But as a filmmaker, you must have felt that you were getting priceless footage in many of these moments. And I was wondering if this dichotomy ever posed any ethical problems for you. And I, I want to mention one scene in particular that I found very uncomfortable to watch. There's a scene in The Act of Killing where one of the actors in this reenactment film confesses that his stepfather was dragged from their home in the middle of the night and killed when he was a boy. I think he was 11 years old. And he, he tries to play this off as something that doesn't bother him. Then, and then he has to act like a prisoner in, in the scene that he's shooting with Anwar, a, a prisoner who's about to be tortured and about to be killed. And he gives a performance that is just way too convincing. I mean, either you guys just happened to stumble across the best actor on earth, or this guy just was not acting. And so I'm, I'm wondering how you felt shooting that scene it's a very it's a very i mean you've, you've honed in on one of the most complicated and difficult moments in the film and it's it's a unique scene in that uh suriono anwar's neighbor was introduced to me and to the crew as a leader in the paramilitary group that carried out the killings and while we were shooting we were what we when he, he confessed he tells the story of his stepfather's murder during the lunch break and we were in this television studio with three units filming. And I was filming with my Colombian 
uh, not cinematographer who doesn't speak uh, doesn't speak Indonesian with Adi Zulkadri in another part of the studio. So I didn't hear the story of how his father was killed. And if I had, I would have taken him aside and said, you shouldn't be with us. You should work with me the rest of the day behind the camera. And then please tomorrow say that you're uh, unwell, that you have a cold, that you have a flu and you, you can't come back because there shouldn't be survivors here. That, that was a kind of principle. Uh, even in the, the dramatizations of attacks on uh, of a massacre on a village, people sometimes think it's survivors being re-traumatized. No, it's only the perpetrators and their families and the children in the scene haven't been told what the scene's about. They, they're, they've been auditioned for their ability to cry, and the ones who can cry are put near the camera, and the ones who are giggling are in the background where you can't see them, mm. and you can't, where you can't see their faces. The, it, here, uh, Suriono reveals that he's a survivor, and then that's right, they cast him to play the victim in a drama, in a reenactment or a dramatization of what happened in the office. And he, and I saw his tremendous performance where he's crying. And I thought it was amazing. It had something very authentic to it, but I wasn't sure if it was not just great acting, melodrama even. And I had avoided in the first cuts of that scene. I didn't hear the story until months after we shot that scene. I was back in London editing. And I was avoiding using any close-ups of his face because I didn't feel that the horrible reality of what was going on, namely perpetrators demonstrating, using reenactment to teach younger members of their own paramilitary group how to torture and kill, uh, I didn't feel that needed melodrama Mm. added to it. And so I was avoiding showing his expressions. And then, so in the first cut of the scene, it wasn't there. Then I went through all the side conversations just that were captured by other members of the crew uh, just to see if I'd missed anything. And I found that uh, I came across this this uh, scene that, that uh, the lunch break, I, I had it wrong earlier. It was, I was filming with Adi Zulkadri and my cinematographer was filming the lunch break and didn't understand what was being said. Mm-hmm. And I came across the scene, the lunch break, and I heard, oh my, this is, my God, this is a, a survivor. And I had to reassess everything, and I felt terrible. And I, I, I called his family. I called him actually when we had a rough cut of the film to try and understand what he was doing in the film. His wife answered and said he passed away from complications of diabetes six months before my call. And I said, "Why was he in the film?" And she said, "Well, he always wanted to show the horror. He felt this was he felt some of this was the opportunity to show the horror of what had befallen his family." And and in in a way, he was right. If I, if if you were not in the film, the film would ha- miss this profoundly upsetting moment where the pain of the survivor somehow bursts through. Yeah, this space yeah. where it shouldn't be. And even there's a shot of Anwar in that moment where you can see even he thinks that this shouldn't be going on. It's what leads Adi Zulkadri, the other Death Squad leader, to say we shouldn't be making this film. It mm. will show what we did was wrong. It right. will show everybody that the propaganda which they've always suspected to be a lie, is a lie. Uh, And Adi leaves the film over it. So it's a very important moment. But if I could do it over again, if I'd heard that story, I would have pulled Suriono out of the film. There should have been no survivors Mm. in the film. And one of the things you see in the so-called director's cut of the film, in the uncut version of the film, is that every sequence culminates in these abrupt cuts to silence. Mm. Uh, Places where there's an abrupt shift in the perspective of the film from the perpetrators to the absent dead, whom I hope haunt the whole the whole film. And in the look of silence, because I set out to shoot it after editing The Act of Killing, I wanted to draw the viewer into any one of those 
haunted silences and make you feel what is it like to live there as a survivor? What is it like to be surrounded by sort of pressed in upon by the still powerful and boasting perpetrators? To feel what is it like? What is it like to live in this haunted space? So in that sense, the two films have this very formal. They complement each other right, in a very precise way, formally. Yet I hadn't. I, it is also true that survivors burst through in a traumatic moment that you're describing yeah. with the scene with Suriano. Well, it's, it's very interesting to know how that scene came about because it was just, again, it it, it did call to mind the idea of a, a psychological experiment here, where you were putting people in situations that just have never existed and. Uh, rolling film and getting stunning footage. Uh, there's but in, another, that, in, that, in that case, it was it a was, mistake. It was inadvertent, yeah. Well, couldn't have been fun for him, but it was a um, one of the more powerful moments in the film. There's another scene in The Look of Silence that may also have been somewhat accidental. I just want to ask you about it. You were, there's a scene where Adi is talking to one of the killers in the company of his daughter, who appears to be around Adi's age. And the daughter clearly loves her father, and she thinks she knows what he's about. But in his response to Adi's questioning, he pulls back the veil on some of the most barbarous behavior anyone's ever heard of. And he's sitting right beside his daughter while he's doing this. And we see his daughter react to this. Um, it's, uh, I actually tear up just thinking about it. Yeah, she, she hears that her father did such terrible things as bringing the heads of Chinese people just to, to, to a coffee shop frequented by Chinese Indonesians just to frighten them and mm. then drinks, would drink the blood of his victims. And when she hears this, she, she realizes that her father is not the hero that she at least tried to make herself believe that he was. Perhaps mm. she always knew that he wasn't. And in that moment, we see her face collapse. It's like uh, she realize, she's realizing that she'll have to spend the rest of his life caring for a man until he dies who is in some terrible way now a stranger to her and she doesn't do what i think i would do in such a situation which is to panic and kick everybody out of the house and collect herself she responds to the moral gaze of adi adi says it's not your fault what your father did and he's whatever he is he's whatever he's done he's still your father she responds to that by finding this becoming very still, very quiet, listening to her conscience and apologizing, reaching out across this abyss of fear and guilt that's dividing everybody in this society and saying, think of me like family now, come and visit us often. And in mm. fact, Adi then is forced to take responsibility for his own project of uh, looking at people with forgiveness and he's forced to forgive not only her, but he doesn't have to forgive her, she hasn't done anything wrong, but he then has to forgive father and he he hugs her but hugs also him the father who looks totally uncomfortable yeah what it seemed to be happening there was that adi was acting largely out of compassion for her i mean he's witnessing her disillusionment about her father and uh, he's having a very direct interaction with her and when he hugged her father i felt that he, he was doing it for her and it just the whole right that's right i mean i think and I think this, it, he's doing it for her. And she says, please don't leave. I, I, she's saying, showing in her face and her body language, stay longer and glancing with fear at her father that mm -hmm. the moment Adi leaves, she's alone now with this man who's done terrible things. And he, he's apologetic as he uh, says his goodbyes. I think that what's 
in that exchange of looks between them. And The Look of Silence is really a film about these exchanges of looks where all what's really, where, where it's shame and compassion and love and empathy and fear that's speaking. Mm. Not the word, that what's happening in these dialogue scenes, in these confrontations is not the dialogue, not the words, but the silences between the words. I think in the, what's happening in that exchange of looks between Adi and Samsir's daughter is this feeling, is this feeling that somehow uh, what's happening there is this sense that there's a responsibility that comes with the moral gaze. And I think this is, you asked me this question about how was I drawn into Anwar and was, uh, and that you found yourself getting drawn into Anwar. And I you have to remember that it was Adi who in 2003 first encouraged me to film the perpetrators and would watch the footage I filmed with them and respond with this same gaze we see again and again in the look of silence depriving me, in a way, of the, of the comfortable position of, condemn, of condemning these people as in whole human beings, of saying these are monsters. I couldn't do it because he refused to do it. There's a moment early in The Look of Silence where he's watching this man who is describing while laughing how he killed women in this awful way on his own wife. Mm. And she's, she's also, uh, and, and you just feel her, she laughs nervously too, but you feel fear there. And there's some sense that, uh, and then Adi, we're thinking this man's ins- a monster, and Adi's saying he he must be numb because he feel he's made himself numb because he feels so guilty. And I, that it's shocking. The viewers thinking Adi must be crazy, but in general, we are forced to see these men through Adi's humanizing gaze, and that doesn't make it easier for the perpetrators. It makes it harder. Because I had the same feeling when I heard the other day, uh, recently on the radio, the survivors of the Charleston killings uh, forgiving the perpetrator, the relatives of the victims forgiving the perpetrator. You, what was so moving is first you're realizing you're realizing that this makes it much harder for the perpetrator because now he has to see his victims as human beings, mm. and it's similar. I think that in fact Adi's humanizing gaze is precisely. What, because he's seeing them as human, they're forced to see him as human. There's this reciprocity, and that makes it hard for them. That's why they panic. That's why she apologizes. That's why he hugs her. And when it's maybe perpetrators, until they're forced to realize what they've done is wrong because they've been removed from power or because the national story has changed, they will not. They will not recognize it. They will not acknowledge it. We can't, but, but if, and if there's hope, it lies in the next generation who can meet Adi's humanizing gaze and say, yes, you're human. You're treating me like a human. So I will treat you like a human. We have ethical obligations to each other because we're looking at each other as human beings. And that's where change will come. That's a, a shattering scene and they are, they are shattering films and, uh, but shattering in a good way. I mean, I feel ethically improved for having seen them. It does feel like a moral obligation to bear witness to these kinds of of human experiences, and you have created a circumstance where we can do that in a just a a wonderfully complex and intelligent and aesthetically beautiful way. And, and the beauty strikes you as a, as a paradox as well. And again, you've, you as you said, you created a kind of formal silence around these events, and. I'm not usually aware of the sound in films, but in the look of silence, just just you know the sound of crickets and the 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 the, the subtle kind of sound engineering you did to bring out a stillness around uh, this chaos. It was a um, 
it's really masterful. So I just just want to praise you again and encourage you to keep doing what you're doing because you are you are at the top of your game, Joshua, and you're bringing the world tremendous value. Well, thank you so very much. I hope our paths cross. And um, I guess the one question I have for you is, what's the best way to view your films in terms of supporting your work? It's important to go to the cinema when you can for two reasons. First of all, because these are immersive experiences which are different on a small screen. I mean, you're not just getting information, you're being immersed in this bath of, as you said, uh, sound and pictures that are that are making you feel the haunted space where ghosts are abroad because the dead haven't been buried and they haven't been mourned properly because no one was even, there was never even a confirmation that they died. And mm. so go to the cinema. If you go to the cinema, also you are pro- pro- meaning that it comes out in more cinemas. The way movies right. come out in America is uh, they start small and if people go, other cinemas book them. And if pe- other cinemas book them, they're reported in local papers and on the media and on the radio and the discussion grows. So you know, don't wait for the film to come out on Netflix, go see it in a movie theater. And it is a kind of temple where you can see the film. Uh, and then, and then, you know, as I said, the, the look, the act of killing, you can see, you don't have to see it before you see the look of silence that is on Netflix, and it's on Netflix, and it's uncut version, the director's cut. And then on the website of the film, the look of silence.com, there is a place where you can learn more and get involved. And there's a letter writing campaign or a petition to get American politicians to open up about our own role in the genocide and to declassify the documents and take responsibility. Because, of course, we can't demand that Indonesia uh, not launch a truth and reconciliation process without being hypocrites if we don't acknowledge our own role in these crimes. Right. Well, I encourage everyone to uh, do all of those things. And uh, again, Joshua, thank you so much for your time and best of luck with the, uh, the rest of the, the rollout of The Look of Silence. Thank you so much. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.